How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. This is Kilconomics Week, John. So I am up to high dough. I, I, I can tell. I can man. I can tell. I am up to high dough. But in order, in order to, uh, to calm me down, I've been watching this extraordinary documentary on Apple called 1971. The year music changed the world. Right. So, you know, it's Carol. 1971? Yeah, so it's okay. particularly 1971, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You would absolutely love it. Yeah, I don't have Apple TV, but anyway, Apple, maybe give us a, give Apple a subscription. TV. Give put out Johnny there a subscription, but it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And of course, the, the great album for 71 is What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Yes. Which is yes. fantastic. But I was also nodding off to sleep last night listening to Gil Scott Heron, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. He was a brilliant, brilliant poet. That and man. you just forget this music was so good. Yeah. It was just so And it was all brilliant. about the, the, the groove, the bass, the drums, and then these Brilliant lyrics, Hunter. Yeah, and you can see where rap comes from. You see hip hop comes from. You see where all that comes from. But all, but all those all those grooves were 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 snipped and sampled and looped and the whole lot by all the rap guys in the eighties. Yeah, and you can really you can really hear. It. And I actual fact, yesterday morning I was listening to Desert Island Discs, which is not something I listen to all the time, but I actually switched so it aged. And <laughs> but it was Rick Rubin. Oh. The voice. I know. I, I, and that's your there. thing. Just yeah. Your thing Rick Rubin on is one of my favourite producers. But the thing David about Plus, Rick Rubin right there is there's the a podcast, magic to him in the studio where he just, I don't know what it is, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but he draws the best out of people. Something out of people yeah. that other and, people can't get. And, that's, and he sits around and there's a lot of talking and there's a lot of just, and it's not all techie stuff. The studio is almost irrelevant but he just draws this brilliant magic out of people. And the amazing thing is that's where, you know, it's Def Jam Records. Yes. Like, so it yeah, is yeah. like, it's full on. And, and the amazing thing about Rick Rubin is that he was a trailblazer, not just in, you know, the Def Jam stuff with, with the Beastie Boys. You know, he produced the Beastie Boys. Yeah. He was the brains behind, but he's also the brains behind the likes of Slayer. 
And then Johnny Cash later on. So, so yeah, yeah, the rejuvenation of Johnny yeah, Cash, yeah. It was the, the whole, whole thing. The whole thing and the different genres and stuff. Genius, that By man. the way, this is an economics podcast. We're going off <laughs> on a little, a little one, a little one, but John's just going to get excited. <laughs> this week, we are going to talk about, John, the profound shift in geopolitics, in geostrategic economics, am mm. I explaining with it, and why Kildare is going to be the epicentre of... The Lily Whites. The Lily Whites, exactly. Kildare is going to be the epicentre of the new Cold War. So that's what it's all about. Why Kildare is going to be elevated. In fact, in the event of a hot war, of a World War III scenario, Hardy's moving towards it, why Kildare is going to play an outside role, not just in Ireland, not just in Europe, but globally. Okay. That's what this okay, week's this podcast is, this, is about. This is interesting. Okay. So we're going to go to Taiwan, right, in a couple of minutes. With Angelica. With Angelica Ung, who's also coming to Kilkenham. <laughs> All the stars are coming. All the stars are aligning. But... What we've seen in the last two weeks, the United States imposed a total ban on the export of all semiconductors, high, highly evolved microchips. Yeah. Not just the export to China, but anybody doing business in the field that knows anything about them is going to be sanctioned. So the State Department in the United States has just said, okay, China is now the enemy, yeah. right? And we're going to explain what has been happening in China, why they've come to that view. But it's very rapid and it's a huge shift. So, I was going to say, it does seem to be, because up until quite recently, China was the main market and their friendship, as it were, seemed to be, they seem to be getting on really good yeah, well, over I, the I, last I 10 easy years. An friendship, but a friendship. Yeah, You're right. yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. It was one, a change. Well, it was this idea of what, 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 what some historians call Chimerica that China and America were blended into one, right? Yeah. Because, and it's all this idea... That's a bit that, like Brangelina. It's like, <laughs> exactly, it's like yeah, Brangelina. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, 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 exactly. But what happened to them? There you go. What happened to them? There you there go. There you go. Anyway, so that era is over and we're in a new era and Angelica is going to talk to us all about that. Mm. But for us, okay, who are not in the region, what it actually means is that idea that globalization, right, over the last 30 years, would lead to not just trading together, who would lead to a sort of a conformity of worldviews. That's out the window now. And basically, what you have is that China looks at Russia. Russia's almost a sideshow now for the Americans, right? Right. The real thing is China. So China looks at Russia as... I can't take their eye off the ball, though. No, no, but I mean, but I'm just saying... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But China's looking at Russia as their petrol station. Right, yes. And then... What Russia is demanding from China is that the Chinese produce reasonably sophisticated, which they do, manufacturing goods and retail goods Mm. for the Russian market. That's how the Russians will get over sanctions against us. In return, they will give discounted energy to the Chinese, who have no energy, with the exception of coal. Mm. They've they've no oil, they've no gas, just coal, right? And that's the deal between those. And maybe that's the only lifeline that Putin has. So, so Russia, are you saying that Russia becomes the kind of the lapdog of China? Yeah. Right, that's, okay. Yeah, okay, Russia's, okay. Russia's, it's all gone for well, Russia. That's kind of humiliating for it's, Putin though it's, as well. It's very humiliating for Russia, but realpolitik demands that you look at the world not as you'd like it to be, but as it is. Okay. So the Americans are saying, okay, hold on a second. This is the, this is the name of the game. So what they've imposed this ban on, on, on semiconductors, why? Because high-end microchips are what drives military spending, but not so much military spending, military computing. Mm. And they've looked at what's happening around the world and they said, we don't want them to get any access to this. 
And this happened unbelievably quickly. And what it does, it has to, to recalibrate all our ideas of the global economy. And the reason Kildare is important in this okay, yeah. is that the World Trade Organization about two months ago produced an amazing chart. You know, like a chart, John. Yeah, right? yeah. And Good it showed chart. the impact of China on the world, right? And I've borrowed this from a guy called Noah Smith, who does a great substack, who's been on the show, right? Yeah, rabbit great, man. Yeah, the, the man who likes the rabbits. Rabbits and Yates, there are yes. two obsessions, right? Yeah, yeah. And what he's saying is that, you know, the new world order is this one where the West, i.e. us, will actually have to act together against China and Russia. So that's America and Europe together and whoever decides to come in on our side. Mm. And the Americans are now leading this way. And what he was talking about was, you know, the world has changed. And he, sh he showed this chart and the chart was supposed to show the impact of Chinese supply chains on Europe, America and Japan. Mm. So he put it up. But what I saw was there was one outlier. You know the way sometimes in a chart you see this little outlier? Yeah. And I said, what's that? And the outlier was Ireland. And it's the shift in Irish supply chains from 2000, when we were almost completely dependent on Europe and Britain. Mm. Okay, so yeah. that's what we, we exported to them, we traded with them, et cetera. Now the Irish little dot on the chart has shifted right over to the United States. So Ireland is that country that we kind of wanted it to be, which is this bridge between Europe and the United States. So our supply chain has changed completely. What Noah Smith was talking about, this is going to happen, right? Yeah. It's already happened for Ireland. We're miles ahead of everybody okay. else. Okay. So Ireland, I'll just give you, I'll give you a couple of figures, right? And this is important. In 1975, Irish exports to North America were valued at 4 billion. By 2020, that figure had risen to 56 billion. Wow. So that's, that's extraordinary, right? Yeah. The Americans now constitute 28% of all Irish exports go to the United States versus 12% for Germany. So the biggest country in Europe, we export less than half yeah. than we do to the United States. So we've become part of the American orbit. And that is all very good for us in the new world that is emerging, right? So in order to get us a hand in the new world and why China is the source of the shift, let's go to Taiwan. Let's talk to Angelica, and then after Angelica, I'll explain to you why Kildare is going to be the epicentre of the new world. Good stuff. Angelica, lovely to see you. How are you? Feeling good and ready to head to Kilconomics. Brilliant. Just about. You're in Taiwan now, but you're, you're, you're coming. So we'll see you Thursday night in Kilconomics. That's Perfect. right. It wouldn't be anywhere else. The place to be. Now tell me, right, let's cut to the chase, right? You're in Taiwan. The tensions between China and Taiwan have increased. I read your substack this week. Explain to me what is the significance of the manhandling of the former leader of China mm -hmm. out of the 30th party conference. What, what went on? Explain to me what's going on, why it's significant. We're going to tie that into the American clampdown on semiconductors, the new Cold War, and actual fact, the hotting up of the Cold War over there. Tell me what's going on. Well, uh, first of all, it was the 20th Party Congress. They have those every five years. It sets a grand direction for the next five years. And we are already expecting that she was going to really do something unprecedented, breaking with the past precedents of stepping up after two turns. We pretty much knew he was going to take a third turn, which already breaks precedent, break number one. 
The second breaking precedent is usually um, there are some rules to who you appoint. And um, after a certain age, they're supposed to retire. And instead, she completely ignores those rules of, you know, above 80, you're out. And uh, he just basically he fired people who were younger than 80 and he kept people who are older than 80. It seems like the only criteria that matters now is whether or not you're one of Xi's own men. And finally, you just had the most precedent-breaking event of all. And this is not just precedent within the Chinese Communist Party. I think just as a human watching what went on in that room, you've got this Hu Jintao, Xi's predecessor, and somebody who supported him without Hu Jintao's support. I don't think she could have become the leader that he is now, basically getting dragged out of the meeting. And just from a human level and from the level of, you know, Chinese culture being differential to one's elders, this is such a contravention of what we assume are pretty fundamental values. So for me, I just don't know what this guy is capable of anymore. And I personally have not been as worried about the invasion as I am right now in this present moment. Because I actually think that if she is a rational player and he can count <laughs> the uh, amount of forces on each side and the mood of the United States and the fact that just any kind of invasion across a body of water is incredibly challenging, he'll know that militarily it's not a smart thing to invade Taiwan. But as we have seen in the case of the Ukraine and Putin, sometimes when strongman leaders surround themselves with yes men, which we very clearly see is a pattern happening in China right now, the leaders kind of lose their rationality. They become madmen. Sure, sure. That is the thing that I think everybody is getting super worried about. Okay, so Angelica, let's just let's just now tease this all out. Tell me about Hu Jintao. Tell me who he was. What was China like under his rule, which was like 2000 to 2012, 2013? Tell me about that China. Then tell me about the present China, the difference, and then what the significance. Away from the fact, and I think you've put it very, you know, extremely interesting there, there's, there's, in Chinese culture, there's deference to older people, there's deference to wisdom, there's deference to your elders. The last thing you do is manhandle your former boss, your, form, your mentor, in effect, out in such exactly. a vulgar, mm. humiliating public way. God knows where he is now, Hu Jintao. But tell me, what was going on in China in his reign and what's the difference between Xi's reign? Okay, so we know that Deng opened up China to development. His strategy was one of reform and openness. And that brought China into three, four decades of golden growth. It started off in 1978. And um, after Deng, we had Jiang and then finally Hu Jintao. So we had president of three leaders that continued on Deng's trajectory, and they've all been very orderly in giving up power after serving two terms. And from the Deng to the Jiang, Jiang Zemin, to the Hu, there's a feeling that China was on this track of 
becoming richer and becoming more prosperous. And even though, you know, there was a the straits crisis, they never gave up their claims on, on Taiwan. And there's a sense that they're becoming a technocratic nation. And the threat of another strongman taking over, even though it's in the back of their minds, so I'll explain later, there's a sense that they, they, they just have the institutions in place to prevent it from happening again. And Hu Jintao, uh, the third of those technocratic leaders, presided over a totally like the most golden area of Chinese GDP growth. I hear people talk about it, people who went to China to their dreams of, of wealth and becoming fabulously successful in the process. And they talk about it with like extreme nostalgia. And it was an era of unprecedented prosperity. But I think always waiting in the wings are the people who never really gave up on the other dream of China, which is the Maoist to leftist dream. And they were kind of just, you know, hanging around in the background. And if we can rewind to 2012 when, when Hu Jintao, this leader, technocratic leader who encouraged growth, encouraged economy, he was due to step down and there was a leadership struggle between the different factions within the, the, the Chinese Politburo. And I should, I should note that these factions, I do believe that they're real, but of course they're very non-transparent. So we can only say that they're fighting over who should succeed who. And let's just say that uh, Xi Jinping, he wasn't a, really a top of mind candidate before 2012. I don't think he was. Everybody thought of him as being pretty mediocre as a leader, as a person. And uh, there, there were some more colorful characters that are in the hat. You know, you had Li Keqiang and you had Wu Xilai, and they all had their own faction of supporters. But in fact, the guy that came out on top, Xi Jinping, was elevated. Perhaps he seemed unlikely to become a strongman. The fascinating thing is that this is precisely the same story as Putin. So Gorbachev gives way to Yeltsin, but not in the same orderly fashion, because Yeltsin and Gorbachev hated each other, actually. But Yeltsin comes in, and in the year 1997, between 1997 and 1999, Russia had five prime ministers. So they went through five various people that the Yeltsin faction was saying, who can replace me? He picks from complete obscurity this nobody from Leningrad, People are like, oh, yeah, well, this guy is going to be around for a little while. But, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a compromised character. He's obviously beholden to one faction or the other. And he comes through and he turns into Vladimir Putin. What I see is exactly the same type of progression. So we have Xi right now. He's in complete power. Explain to me what he has done in the last couple of weeks to make you even more concerned, like in terms of the language he uses, in terms of the methodology he's using, in terms of what he's saying about Taiwan, what he's saying, because it's very clear, very clear that the Americans have shut the door on China. So explain to me what's been going on in China, in Chinese. <laughs> well, I, I feel like the most concerning part is probably him being against Taiwanese independence to the charter, which he did in the 20th Party Congress. I feel like that is a move that really kind of sets a tone. Usually what they would do is have those top level directives, which will get broken down by the local. Like it, it's kind of like 
this is the direction of the company, and then your department is responsible for coming up with the KPIs that'll help you move towards this, and then how well you can meet those KPIs will sorry, determine sorry. This the podcast course of doesn't your career. Understand. This podcast doesn't understand what is a KPI. Gian and I haven't had a proper job for about 25 years, which is basically 50 years between the pair of us. What is a KPI? So your key performance indicator. So, you know, I, I, they, they don't literally say this. I'm just using I'm just using some business gobbledygook to explain, though, how does That's why the we're will lost. of That's why the we're Paramount lost. leader diffuse itself into into like if you think about what an enormous co- country China is and um, how does one man diffuse his will over like this enormous country? Right. So the elevation of um you know, defeating Taiwanese independence as a goal into the charter, that is worrying. Okay, so so let me just stop you there. So what we're talking about is there's a progression from Deng to Hu over a 20-year period where the economy is primary, wealth is primary, openness... Tolerance, mm-hmm. all of that goes with it. Taiwan is it goes kind of it kind of falls off the it falls off the charter as an important thing. It's yeah, it's something we worry about, but it's yeah, all they, economics. They, they pay lip service, lip service to it. They yeah. pay lip service, and 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 they will say things like I forgot who said this exactly. But it's like, oh yeah, and the unification could happen in a hundred years, and yeah. then by that point, who cares? Who you cares? Know, who cares what happens in a hundred years? So basically, they're, they're playing the long game. So now what you're saying is that the economy, which used to be absolutely central to the central mm-hmm. party committee is now underneath these goals of nationalism of totalitarianism of closing of control and then top of the list the cherry on this particular cake is the nationalist idea of taking back taiwan so the entire you're saying the entire philosophy of the communist Absolutely. apparatchiks has changed I think this is with the, if you've seen the video, just on a human level, you can't but feel terrible for Hu Jintao because first of all, he was trying to look at a folder and then people people were trying to stop him from looking at what's in this folder. We'll never know what's in there. And he was kind of hoisted up by his armpits and you could see him gently trying to resist before and, and he still just has this look of incredulity on his face. And there's plenty that Xi Jinping did before this as signal that he was going to turn the back on things China, the, the China of openness and reform. But this very concretely is the end of the era. And everybody feels this on a visceral level. You can see it in the crashing stock markets in Hong Kong, in China. You can see it in the people that's trying to get out, the, the people who still had any any trace of, of expectation about how she's taking a different path, but he can still be reasonable. Yes, uh, he talks about nationalism, but we still have to make money. You have to realize all that is gone now. This is truly the end of an era. We cannot have any expectations of Xi Jinping to do the thing that be a continuation of that path. China is becoming closed again, and, you know, it was actually a while ago they introduced the concept of the thing, the dual circular economy. They're going to concentrate more on boosting internal demand, bring that up. And then they'll also have a second loop, which is external, but their version of friendshoring with all the Belt and Road countries, et cetera. And it totally goes contrary against what made China an economic force 
to begin with. It's just so, really so, bizarre. So from 1990, from actually Tiananmen Square, if we're going to actually locate this on a date, to about five years ago, maybe even four years ago, China was very, very much the country that was looking to the West and the West was its source of growth. But what you're saying is that during this period, there's this power struggle between the, let's say, the people who are open and the people who are more closed, the liberals and the more old-fashioned Maoists. Now we're in a situation where maybe it's a result of COVID, maybe it's a result of geopolitics, that Xi has now thought this is his moment to change. Maybe it's because of the fact that the West looked quite weak in the beginning of COVID. But now what you're saying is that China has become completely a different creature. Now, if that's the case, what do you think the next 12 months suggests for Taiwan? Because Taiwan is the Donbass in this region. Taiwan is the area where the West and China could actually go to war. First of all, just to rewind a little bit, I actually think Xi has had this plan hatching all along. If you look at the diplomatic cables that was written like before he came into power, he already was described as somebody who value social stability and national strength over getting rich. He was never like a Hu Jintao. He described him as somebody who could be corrupted by power, meaning he never loved money. She never loved money. And he was probably always just biding his time for a good time to turn China back into the more ideologically pure version that he believed in, which is quite ironic since his family suffered a lot in the Cultural Revolution. Well, it is kind of funny because it, it has it has a Cultural Revolution feel to it when you take somebody out it in does. public and you humiliate them in public because my understanding of the Cultural Revolution was that a huge part of the change in the Cultural Revolution was humiliating people in public all the time and having these sort of show trials and show moments and events that trans- that basically transported people into a world of us and them, us and them all the time. Angelica, I just wants to ask you a quick question. I'm really curious about the COVID zero policy because yeah. that's clearly having a damaging impact on the Chinese economy. Is there an ulterior motive to have a COVID? And, and what would that be? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, the the COVID zero policy doesn't seem to have a logical end because COVID is out there now. It's endemic. If you're not going to let COVID be open um, now, there's no logical point in which you're like, oh, that's enough of COVID zero. Let's let's just open up now. There's no logical endpoint to this policy. And a lot of people are saying this totally doesn't make any sort of sense unless you are preparing your population for being on some kind of wartime footing to have food be rationed, to have movement be controlled. And that is something, again, like I really usually hate to speculate and stay away from speculating, but the flow of information out of China is so non-transparent and the stakes are so high that we have to take that possibility into account. But over the last couple of weeks or last month, we've seen a few kind of protests and demonstrations and stuff. Is that building or is that being crushed? 
I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure all those people who were brave enough to put out any banners, any kind of, first of all, they absolutely know when they did that, the consequences will likely be the end of them. And that's how desperate they've been pushed. And while I commend those people for their protests, I also am pessimistic about the prospect of um, serious pushback coming from the Chinese people, despite all the pressure they're under. And it's just, there's so many tools at the ruling party's disposal to control what people do, who people contact, even how people think. If you think about an enormous amount of thinking that we do that's influenced by the internet, Chinese Communist Party controls all that. So it's very, very difficult for individual discontent and even individual action to coalesce into something that would more seriously threaten Xi's power, basically. I, I don't see it being a big factor right now, unfortunately. Right. Now, let me just end by talking about Taiwan, right? The Americans have now very clearly shut off all semiconductor exports to, the, to China Anybody who's even involved in business in China, involved in semiconductor business in China, will be sanctioned personally, not just the corporation, personally. What does this mean and what is the mood in Taiwan right now? Well, first of all, this is a very good move and they should have done it five years ago. But I really believe the urgency of cutting China away from any further development in high-performance computing was made very clear by the progress of the war in Ukraine. We've seen that how the Ukrainians, having a smaller army, was able to really strike from very far away using pretty old equipment because they were able to fit like smart guiding systems onto those old equipment. And so I think to the U.S., everybody was learning how this postmodern warfare was going to work. And the U.S. very clearly saw that to prevent China from getting stronger in this respect was key to the defense of Taiwan. I think that if you listen to what Antony Blinken is saying, if you listen to what the American retired generals are saying, the timeline has been pulled in to a degree that is unbelievable because they were saying 2027 before and now you're getting like next year getting bandied about. And I don't know. Nobody knows because it's, it's up to one man when he's going to attack. And I probably would have been more apt to dismiss this as just, you know, oh, no, I, it's not really going to happen. I said, I remember <laughs> the beginning of the Ukraine war before the Russians attacked, the people in Kiev were actually saying, no, there's, don't, don't be overdramatic. You're actually hurting our cause. Russia's not going to attack. It would be crazy. And you guess what? Putin did it anyway. So I have no visibility into where the American info came from. But they were right about the they were right about Russia attacking Ukraine. So that gives me cause to worry. I hope that I'm worrying for nothing. I really do, because it would be insane for China to attack now, because I don't think they've built up their military to the point where objectively they can win. It's such a high consequence event that even if the probability is still low, I do believe that we need to prepare for it. Let's, let's end on, on a note of hope. <laughs> I, I feel like the Chinese are shooting themselves. Xi's policy is not going to make China stronger. It's going to make China weaker. 
And the United States totally understand, have absolute clarity that even Russia is a sideshow. Their real adversary is China, and they're focused. And I believe Japan also is focused on, I think everybody knows that backing up Taiwan is not charity. It's, it's not like doing the right thing. It's not being a white knight. It's about everybody's own interests. The interest of democratic, like-minded countries in the world to preserve freedom in the world comes down to saving our little island. And I believe that if we are all aligned in this cause, I don't think China is strong enough to win if they are foolish enough to strike. Angelica, on that note, wonderful note, we will talk to you this weekend in Kilkenny and uh, chat to you very soon in Dublin and in Kilkenny and in Ireland. Talk to you soon, David. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Cheers. Bye. Wow, Mac, there's an awful lot to pick apart there. And she threw up a whole lot of stuff that things like the Belt and Road Initiative and, you know, especially when Xi was talking about, you know, all the stands being China's new front yard and all that kind of stuff. But also she said that Xi's policy was making China weaker. And there's something about that. I, I, I'm not sure. I think there's I think we need to look into this a bit more. Okay. But maybe it's something that we'll come back to on, a, on another podcast because I want to talk to you about what you were saying earlier about the semiconductor business. But before we do that, let's pay some bills. Paying bills is always important. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You were talking there about the semiconductor side of the economy and America wanting to control that whole side of things. Explain a little bit more about that to me. First of all, semiconductors basically are microchips that go into computers to make them work. And three companies in the world are at the very, very advanced stage of that. One is Intel, American company. Yeah. One is this Taiwanese company, which is the Taiwanese Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And the other is Samsung in Korea. So they're the three ones which are right at the cutting edge. Mm. And in order to create that technology, they are spending unbelievable amounts of money. Right, because this is the highest high-end technology. There's also a Dutch company right. which provides some of the technology. Okay. So we've got technology. Yeah. Then we've got nanotechnology. Yeah. Then we've got the nano of nanotechnology. And then you get down to such microscopic levels that it's almost atomic. Or right. It's You're quantum down, stuff, is it? Tiny, tiny, tiny things. Yeah. And according to people who know, like engineers, they're talking about things like bending light to get no, really high-end right. stuff. Now, for years, Intel only allowed 
to workforces outside of America to involve themselves in this high-end stuff. One was the workforce in Ireland, yeah. and the other one was the workforce in Israel. So they have two big fabs outside, right? And we forget that this has always been part of, small part of Intel has always been part of the American defense community, right? Now what we're going to, we're going to a world where in the past, markets used to decide where investment was going. Mm. That's all over now. It's governments, because investment in this stuff is strategic and it's military. So it's the Americans have said, okay, guys, you're with us. We're going to hermetically seal our supply chain. So only workforces that we really trust, like the Irish and the Israelis, are on our side. Now they're building a big fab in Germany. Mm. The reason they're building a massive fab in Germany is the European Union is on side. So they've given them a massive subsidy okay. to do this. So what the West well, is Germany doing also that, needs to change their kind of Germany, business model. And Germany needs to change its business model. Like yeah. They can't just build cars anymore. Yeah. So what we're looking at is this total recalibration very, very high-end technology, right? We know there's only three companies in the world capable of doing this at that level, right? Mm. The problem with the other two companies, one is in Korea, one's in Taiwan, they're too close to China. Yeah. Right? So the Americans are now doubling down on Intel. But do you, do you know what, just as you're, you're explaining that to me, I'm thinking, ooh, hermetically sealed and all that kind of stuff. There's a real security implication to all this. There's a huge security implication. And, and are, are we, as a government and as a country, kind of, are, are we geared up for that? Or do we become the 51st state? Well, I think that we have become the 51st state in all but name when it comes to technology yeah. and manufacturing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and I think that has always been the Irish objective. Because the fascinating thing about economics is that economies that are actually very, very dynamic are highly diversified, mm. okay? You can do lots of things in them. Yeah. Think about it, there's 900 American companies that have their European headquarters in Ireland. That is 900 companies doing different things, yeah. right? So we are becoming part of the American yeah. world. Yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah. absolutely no doubt. Now, I actually, for one, think that's a good thing. I think okay. that's where, mm, that's, okay. you know, because I think that's, that's, that's where technology is. That's where sure. economics goes. And I think once you provide a good living for your people, Everything else falls into place. Yeah. But there's lots of people who be on the neutral side in Ireland and say, hold on a second, are we involving ourselves in the American military industrial complex? Yes, well, that's the other thing, because we are supposed to be neutral. Well, we are. <laughs> both neutral and involving ourselves in the American yeah. military industrial complex. It's an oxymoron. I know, but exactly. Well, no, it's, it's whatever you say, say nothing. It's the Irish approach to yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a fascinating thing. So let's recap. Americans have decided, okay, Semiconductors is our business. Joe Biden said that a couple of weeks ago. He said, mm. semiconductor industry is going to be American, right? They've excluded the Chinese. It means they're doubling down on bets on American corporations that can actually make this stuff. Yeah. The major corporation is Intel. That's the major employer in Kildare making this stuff, right? Making this new fab. Intel will have, by the end of next year, think about this, invested... 17 billion in a new fab in Kildare. I mean, these are huge amounts Amazing, of money. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons Intel's share price is falling is that typically what a company does is it gives dividends to its shareholders. But what Intel's doing now is it's saying, all that money we're going to give back to our shareholders, we're not going to give it to you. We're actually going to focus on investment for the future. That's the big bet they're playing. Right. But it also means that if America are, if Biden is backing the semiconductor 
business. The American semiconductor, yeah. Yeah, he's not going to let a company like Intel fail. Of course anyway. not. Of course not. So Intel ends up becoming part of the American State Department's worldview. Yeah. Which was always the way. So when the, when the Americans fought the Second World War, they never nationalised any industries. So the American government said, we need, the Second World War is an amazing model for the Yanks, right? Yeah. The American government said, we need 5,000 planes, 10,000 trucks. And they went to the private sector and said, you make them for us and we'll pay. Right. And that's exactly what they're doing now, yeah. right? But it just so happens that Intel in leak slip is going to be right at the center of this. So this new Cold War is going to be fought through semiconductors. Intel employing American, Israeli, Irish, and German workers. That's it. That's the hermetically sealed complex right. we're talking about. And what is fascinating for me is that it looks like the new arms race is not going to be about building guns. It's about building chips. Yeah. Unpalatable as it might sound for Irish people, you know, building semiconductors is far more effective than building semi-automatic weapons. Semi-automatic weapons, low scale. Semiconductors, high scale. And whether we like it or not, there's a new world out there, John. And Kildare is the epicenter of the new Cold War. 